John chapter 7. So we um, have arrived at installment uh, 12, I think it is, of our journey through John's Gospel, one of the four precious first century biographies of Jesus. And uh, I've said many times that the prelude to John's Gospel, the first 18 verses, set up everything that comes uh, in the rest of the Gospel. It's like the key that unlocks uh, what follows. And one of the principal themes of the prelude is that this is going to be a story of rejection and acceptance. And so uh, chapter 1 verse 11, that we spent a whole sermon on this, uh, these lines, says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Rejection and acceptance. And we've seen stories of rejection so far. Do you remember chapter 5? Jesus heals a paralyzed man in Jerusalem by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day and gets into huge trouble because that breaks the law against doing any work on the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus is doing the work of mending on uh, the Sabbath day and his patient gets into trouble for carrying his mat, which breaks the ancient uh, Pharisaic rule of carrying furniture uh, on the Sabbath day. Both of them are lawbreakers and that chapter ends, you may remember, by the religious leaders designing to kill Jesus. It's a pretty serious rejection. But we've also seen uh, stories of uh, acceptance as we've walked our way uh, through this gospel. There was the uh, Samaritan woman, do you remember that, chapter 4? This outsider, ethnically outside, religiously outside, and Jesus just warmly embraces this woman, and this woman embraces him uh, as the Messiah, and then she goes and tells her whole Samaritan town that he's the Messiah, and they all go, oh, okay, yeah, he's the Messiah, and they believe. Wonderful acceptance. And perhaps the sort of principal uh, example of people accepting Jesus and becoming children of God are the 12 apostles. They embrace Jesus and they will be, despite their confusion and their failings, they will be faithful to the very end, uh, with the exception of one of them, famously, right? But uh, last week in chapter 6, we saw that Peter kind of expresses the heart of genuine trust in Christ. Do you remember when the crowds were leaving Uh, turning their back on Jesus, and Jesus turns to the 12 and says, what about you? Are you going to leave? And Peter says, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Beautiful trust in Christ. But by now, we are also used to the fact that John's story is often not so clear-cut. There is often an ambiguity and even irony in the way John tells uh, the story. It's not as simple as some people accept Jesus, some people reject Jesus. No, 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 it's far more complicated. Uh, John was there, of course. John was an eyewitness. And he tells us that it was a lot more like real life. There were people that you thought were embracing him who turned out they didn't, and there were people that you thought rejected him, and they ended up believing. It was really messy, just like real life. And that ambiguity theme is struck in a key passage that I've said several times now, is one of the little helps to reading this ambiguity theme in John's Gospel. Back in chapter 223, we read, many people saw the signs Jesus was performing and believed in his name, which sounds great, sounds like revival's broken out, except 
it says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. And then immediately we're introduced in chapter 3 to Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee and a member of the ruling council of Israel. And he turns up to Jesus, thoroughly impressed with Jesus' miracles, and Nicodemus is told by Jesus, "Um, you need to be born again. Jesus, as good as tells him, your religious pedigree and privilege mean nothing with getting into God's favor. You have to receive it as a pure gift. You must be born again. And today, we're going to meet Nicodemus again here in chapter 7. And we're going to have reason to ask, has he begun to move a little bit toward Jesus? And the answer is, maybe. But first, we're going to see this ambiguity theme, this mix of belief and unbelief in Jesus' own family. In the first section of chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, we see that the brothers of Jesus themselves have a highly ambivalent approach to Jesus. Thanks, Meredith. Reading from John chapter 7, which you can read along on page 866 of the Blue Standard Bible and 1659 in the Brown Large Print Bible. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go around in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Thanks. We see subtlety here, there's ambiguity, and there's even a little bit of irony, which by the end of this chapter is going to be writ large. I agree that a superficial reading of this passage looks like Jesus deceives his brothers, at least tricks them. Oh, no, I'm not going to the Tabernacles Festival. (laughs) And then he goes to the Tabernacles Festival. Except there's way more going on here. So just follow the logic of the passage. His brothers are goading him to go to the festival and make this festival the public showcase of his authority. If you are who you seem to be implying that you are, 
You must show yourself down there in the capital, in Jerusalem, at the great festival of tabernacles. Show yourself to the world, they say in verse 4. And frankly, what better festival to show yourself to the world? I mean, the Feast of Tabernacles is a glorious and joyful celebration. It was an eight-day celebration of the period of Israel's wanderings in the desert when they were led by Moses centuries earlier and lived in tents. And God provided for them daily with food and with water. And uh, all these centuries later in Jesus' day, this festival uh, drew hundreds of thousands of Jews from all around the ancient world flocking in pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate this eight-day festival with singing and eating and drinking. And by night, I kid you not, they created little tabernacles, little tents, and they slept in them to remember that centuries earlier their people were wanderers. And if you have Orthodox Jewish friends today, you'll find that during this eight-day period, they actually set up a little tent and they sleep in it at night to remember this. So that's partly what they did. But the other really cool thing they did in Jesus' day, because the temple was still standing, is the climactic event of this tabernacle festival was they collected water from the pool of Siloam down in the southern suburbs of Jerusalem, uh, a pool that's still there actually, and and they collected the water and, and took it up in a great sort of celebration and and crowds lining the streets about 700 meters up into the temple and all week long in a golden jug they just collected tons of water and took it up to the temple so that on the last day the great day of the feast of tabernacles they then poured out this water as a sign of God pouring out his life on Israel um, on the very temple altar in the holy of holies It was a spectacular festival. And if you're interested in seeing the details, uh, there's the primary document for it, the Mishnah Sukkah 4. Um, Very different from Passover, which we've had reason to think about quite often. Passover was a blood festival, remember? The lamb was sacrificed, its blood sprinkled against the altar, and it was a sign of atonement, someone dying for the sins of another. Uh, This Tabernacles Festival, by contrast, is a water festival. And it's at its heart, it's water poured out on that same altar as a symbol of God's life-giving spirit. And I sometimes feel the whole of Christianity, actually, could be summarized in these two festivals. Jesus' atoning death, fulfilling the Passover, and his gift of life through the Spirit in fulfillment of the tabernacles. But that's perhaps a run ahead of myself. The point I want us to notice is that Jesus says, "Mm -mm, this is not the festival, I'm going public. And look what he says in verse 6, my time is not yet here. For you guys, to his brothers, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival, I'm not going up to this festival. In other words, I'm not going to show myself to the world at this festival like you just begged me to do. Because my time has not yet come. Jesus will attend the festival as a pilgrim, even as a teacher, but he will not show himself as Messiah at this festival. Um, We know the festival he'll show himself as Messiah to, don't we? Which one? Passover. Six months later. So this scene is in October. It'll be next April at Passover that Jesus will go public, admit that he's the Messiah by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, And within seven days, he's dead. So he's waiting for that time. 
But there's something striking and even ironic here in uh, verse 5, where, where um, John reports, verse 5, even his own brothers did not believe in him. Actually, this is corroborated by the other Gospels. Uh, Mark's Gospel in chapter 6 actually gives us the name of the brothers. John doesn't, uh, Mark does. They're listed there as James, Joseph Jr., not to be confused with the father, Judas, certainly not to be confused with that bad Judas, uh, and uh, Simon. So at least four brothers, and uh, we know he had a couple of sisters uh, as well, who unfortunately are not named. Uh, In Mark 3, uh, we learn uh, that actually the family of Jesus, including the brothers, thought Jesus was mad. It says uh, his family came to uh, take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Isn't that extraordinary? The family of Jesus thought he was out of his mind. But here is the curious thing I want us to observe. By the time John wrote his gospel in the, let's say, 90s AD, it was well known everywhere that the brothers of Jesus had come to believe in him because they all got their own resurrection appearance and believed, as you would. And these brothers became leaders. In fact, James, the older of the remaining brothers, as in Jesus' younger brother, okay, so post his virgin birth, uh, James, and then the other brothers. James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem until his execution, his martyrdom in the year 62, for which we have external evidence. The other brothers, the the remaining uh, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, we know became famous traveling missionaries with their wives. And we have this from a little passing comment the Apostle Paul makes in a letter to the Corinthians. So that's how famous they were. Even far away in Greece, these Galilean missionary brothers of Jesus were already known. Now here's the thing. This is why I'm pointing this out. John knew that most of his readers knew these brothers didn't remain unbelievers. But he just leaves it there. They did not believe in him. And everyone's going, isn't that amazing? But we know that they, they did. They became leaders and even martyrs. And so we find ourselves pondering this ambiguity theme again. Those who looked like they rejected Jesus ended up accepting him. And some of those who looked like they were embracing him rejected him. It's an ambiguity struck in the final lines of this first section, verse 12 and 13. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives people, but no one would say anything public about him for fear of the leaders. And so the text probes our hearts with this ambiguity and division. It asks us, where do we stand? And it's a question that intensifies as we move into the next section of John 7, where Jesus now attends the festival from verse 14, uh, preaches, and some condemn him, and others accept him, and some are in between, including the leaders and the crowds. Meredith. Continuing from verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, 
My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, although actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that point, some of the people in Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him. And he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me? And... Where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing these words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, 
but no one laid a hand on him. Thank you. Those final lines, uh, verse 43, 44, could stand as a summary of the whole passage, really, don't you think? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Indeed, they were divided. And this theme of division runs through every paragraph. And I, I don't have time to go line by line through this passage, for which you are very thankful. I do want to just point out a couple of really key things that I think open up this passage. Notice some were amazed, verse 15, winding back to verse 15, some were amazed at Jesus and asked, how did this man get such learning? So at the very point, people are going, wow, that's incredible teaching. Look what Jesus says in response in verse 16. He basically says that those with hearts open to God's will will recognize his teaching as from God. Verse 16, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. There is, in other words, a heart dimension to our moral and intellectual convictions. The heart opens us to our intellectual convictions. I know we like to think of ourselves as totally rationally driven, but actually Jesus says... If you're someone who's really open to the will of God, you'll recognize his teaching. If you're not, not so much. And what I find extraordinary is that 2,000 years later, this is one of the main verified findings of the psychology of belief, which is a huge subject. And Professor Jonathan Haidt wrote this book, uh, The Righteous Mind, New York Times bestseller. Um, he's an atheist and an evolutionary social psychologist. I, I've talked about this before, but he outlines in this book study after study after study that pretty clearly demonstrates our hearts drive our minds very often. There's a little bit of recursive relationship there since, you know, we can sometimes sort of uh, manage, corral our emotions and make good decisions, but actually he makes pretty clear whether atheist or believer, left or right, whatever, what we want very often shapes what we think is true. And the thing I find interesting about all that research is that Jesus said it first. And here in this context, what he means is those who humbly sought God's will in Scripture will recognize his teaching as the fulfillment of it. But those who come to Scripture with this crusty, angry, cold tradition are going to look at the expansiveness and generosity of Jesus' teaching and go, that's heresy. Yeah? I think that's what he's saying. And he has a particular example in mind because the last time he was here in Jerusalem was back in chapter 5 when he healed this paralyzed man at Bethesda on the Sabbath day and these very people got super upset and tried to kill him for doing work on the Sabbath. And that's what he refers to directly in chapter 723. 723... He's arguing with them because he's remembering how he got into trouble over this Sabbath issue. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me, indeed wanting to kill him, for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? He's referring back to chapter 5 when he was here months earlier. And his argument is brilliant. I know it sounds a bit weird to us all these years later, but you imagine being a first century Jew in the temple listening to this argument. In the law of Moses, it says you're allowed to do the work of circumcision even if the eighth day, which is when you have to circumcise the kid, falls on the Sabbath day. Are you telling me 
we can do that, but I can't heal someone's whole body on the Sabbath day? Are you nuts? That's what he's saying in the Greek. It says, you're nuts. (laughs) You have a cold, rigorous, rule-bound approach to things. No wonder you can't see that my teaching is from God. This division theme continues into the next paragraph as some in the crowd raise really good questions about Jesus and others just aren't quite so sure. Look at verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. Uh, When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Okay, now this sounds puzzling, especially since other people, like in 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 this section, say we know the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. It's actually really simple to understand this. There were two traditions alive in Jesus' day. One said... Um, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And that actually had scriptural warrant. Micah 5 says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So they knew the, the sort of ultimate origin of the Messiah would be a birthplace, Bethlehem, David's, uh, David's city. But there was a second tradition that isn't taught in the Old Testament, but we do know some Jews of this period believed it, which said, despite knowing where the birthplace of the Messiah must be, when he actually appears as an adult to do the work of God and reveal himself as Messiah, to overthrow the enemies of God, it will come out of the blue. No one will know. He will just appear and he will do the work of God in overthrowing enemies. And it's this tradition that they're saying, hang on, we know Jesus. We've known him for two years. He's been that rabble rouser up in Galilee. He's becoming up and down from Galilee to Jerusalem, causing a stir. There's no way he can be the Messiah. That's what's going on here. Um, Notice then, John offers this lovely piece of irony. And and by the way, there are whole scholarly essays on the theme of irony in John's Gospel. It's a really big uh, theme that scholars have explored. And I just wanted to show you one little example. We'll have cause in the rest of the series to note some others. But on this theme of where does the Messiah come from, look at verses 41 to 42. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, where the town of David lived? And then John leaves it hanging in the air like that. But he knows Jesus was born in Bethlehem and he knows that his readers know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But he leaves this sort of excuse for not taking Jesus seriously hanging in midair as a good example of how sometimes excuses for not following Jesus are really lame and need to just hang in all their silliness. I mean, he could have said, but they didn't know he was born in Bethlehem. Or, you know, we could have had Jesus going, but I was born in Bethlehem. No, it's just much better going, he wasn't, he's not from Bethlehem, we don't believe in him. And readers are meant to go, couldn't they have asked? Couldn't they have inquired? It's just an example of the hasty, empty reasons people sometimes give for not following Jesus. And man, oh man, today we could make a whole book of them. Lame excuses people offer for Jesus, like... um, Jesus was just one of thousands of messiahs you sometimes hear. He was just the lucky one that we've heard about. 
Or you hear people say, uh, Jesus married Mary Magdalene, had three kids, got divorced, and the kids can be found in modern France today. Well, the descendants of, right? Or some people actually go right out on a limb and say, there's no evidence Jesus even lived at all. And almost right on cue, just this week, Amazon Prime started to promote a documentary that's about to come out that claims the Jesus story was a Jewish rehash of the real-life story of a pagan philosopher called Apollonius of Tyana. And Apollonius of Tyana's details have been superimposed on this sort of composite Jesus in the Gospels. That's the claim of the documentary. Doesn't matter that Apollonius did not even have a public career until three decades after Jesus. Doesn't matter that Apollonius wasn't even known in public until we already have several writings about Jesus. Doesn't matter that our sole biographical source of Apollonius is from 150 years after the Gospels were written. Still they're saying this earlier story was pinched from that later story. You know, sometimes criticisms deserve to just hang there in all their emptiness and silliness. And you know, some people want to believe that stuff. I know there will be some sincere people who will be confused by that stuff, right? And I feel real sympathy for them. But I know there will be other people who will lap it up. They want to believe that. And they deserve to. Their heart drives their head. And I think that's what John's doing with this silly criticism about, oh, but you're not from Bethlehem. Well, before we get to the final section of this chapter and the sort of climactic point of John 7, I want us to notice something really special about what Jesus teaches this crowd. He reserved his climactic teaching for the last day of the festival. Did you notice that? And John expects you to know lots about what happens on tabernacles, okay? So there's a lot going on from verse 37, right? Verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water, will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Keep in mind that this is the day when the priests have gathered in giant golden jugs tons of water from Siloam up into the temple, and on this day, they pour it all out over the temple. And on this day, Jesus stands up and as good as says, you want real water? The real living water of which that is just a sign? Come to me and I will give you the real water. And I love the way John offers his little commentary. He's often doing this. I've said that before. Uh, there in uh, verse 39, he says, by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believe in him were to receive. And John's not just sort of making this up as he goes along. This connection between water and spirit is as, as, it's as old as Isaiah, centuries before Jesus. As Isaiah 44.3 prophesies, For I will pour water on the thirsty land, says the Lord, and streams on the dry ground. 
I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And so the thing I want us to just notice is that Jesus not only fulfills the Passover festival as the atoning sacrifice, he fulfills the tabernacles festival because in his resurrection and his gift of the spirit, that's the water of life of which that temple ceremony was just a picture. The last line of this penultimate section beautifully sets up the final section, verse 43. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. What's going on there? I mean, it's possible to interpret this miraculously, like God is supernaturally making sure no one can arrest him, like there's a force field around him or something, right? But actually, the very next scene tells us there were also some human actors who made it possible for Jesus not to be arrested. I'm talking about the guards and Nicodemus, verse 45. Continuing from verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Thank you. Why did no one lay a hand on him yet? Well, I guess theologically we could say because it's not the Passover festival yet. It's October. We've got to wait till April, okay, for Passover, and that's when he'll disclose himself as a Messiah and, and, and so on. But part of the explanation is the guards who were sent out to collect him. They come back saying, no one speaks like that. Verse 46, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Now, please don't think of these uh, guards as mere thugs. Actually, they're chosen from the priestly class to be guards of the temple. So these guys knew their scriptures and they knew their temple rituals. And they've gone out and listened to Jesus, planning to arrest him. And they've heard him and they've thought, oh my goodness. Maybe they heard that brilliant argument about Sabbath and whether you can do good on the Sabbath like heal someone. And maybe they were, were sitting there listening going, actually, that sounds more plausible, that the, that the loving God of Israel would allow you to do good on the Sabbath instead of what the Pharisees are saying. Or maybe they heard that final climactic message of Jesus just as the water is being poured out on the altar as a sign of God's life-giving spirit up there in the Holy of Holies. Jesus is declaring, come to me if you want real water. Maybe they were thinking, that could be true. What this symbolizes, he actualizes. Well, whatever their reasons for being uh, drawn to Jesus, their, uh, their leaders scold them, clobber them, really, rhetorically, in remarks that are dripping with Johannine irony. And I want you to see this, verse 47. 
You mean he has deceived you also? (laughs) The Pharisees retorted, Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob who knows nothing of the law, like we do, there is a curse on them. Now think about this. These men who reckon healing is forbidden on the Sabbath are accusing Jesus of being the deceiver. Hmm. They declare this crowd, this mob, cursed by God because they're interested in Jesus' message that the curse of God can be lifted from you by believing in him. Irony. And then the sweetest irony of all is there in verse 48. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed him? This is meant to be the knockdown argument. The Pharisees, the revered theologians, the rulers, these are the Sanhedrin members, 70 ruling men in Judea. Has any of them believed? Knockdown argument. No, no one has. Uh, except in the next line, one of them sort of does. Verse 50, and again, the irony is dripping. Nicodemus, verse 50, who had gone to Jesus earlier, back in chapter 3, and who was one of their own number. I mean, Nicodemus is not only a Pharisee, he's a Pharisee and a ruler on the Sanhedrin council. Okay, so he's like double whammy. Asked the question, does our law condemn a man for fir- without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And I can almost hear the temple guards chuckling in the corner. Right? No one of the Pharisees or the leaders, uh, except Nicodemus, maybe. But the chuckling was drowned out by the outrage in verse 52. They replied to Nicodemus, one of their revered number, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You will find that no prophet does not come out of Galilee. Sorry, sorry, that find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And, and then John ends. Just leaves it hanging. And we don't hear about Nicodemus again until chapter 19 in the burial scene when Nicodemus helps Joseph of Arimathea with the burial of Jesus. And even there, John doesn't tell us what Nicodemus is really thinking. It would have taken genuine resolve on the part of Nicodemus to stand up in this ruling council, and to the Pharisees, suggesting that we give Jesus a hearing. That's gutsy. But does this mean Nicodemus is coming to Jesus? Is this his come to Jesus moment? Do you remember uh, Jesus back in chapter 3 basically told him, Nicodemus, if you rely on your privilege and your theological pedigree, you will never see the kingdom of God. You've got to be born again. Simple as that. So is this the moment where Nicodemus is beginning to sit loosely with his privilege? Is that what gives him the courage to say, I don't care what the Pharisees think of me anymore, I'm sticking up for Jesus? Is that what's happening here? Maybe. I don't know. John just leaves it hanging. And it looks to me deliberate. Because John is less interested in telling us the biographical details of Nicodemus than he is challenging readers about their own hearts and their own response to Jesus. There's like a question that is left hanging in the air. What's their response to Jesus? What do the guards really think? What does Nicodemus think? And yet the real question we're meant to ask is, what do we think? What excuses are we perhaps making? 
for not taking Jesus more seriously? What lame half-arguments are we hanging on to? Are our motives mixed? Are our hearts cold? I don't know what happened to the temple guards. I don't know what happened to Nicodemus. I can't tell whether he becomes a Christian or not. And you know what? I don't really care. Six weeks out from finishing up as your rector, all I really care about is asking everyone in this church, what do you make of Jesus Christ? Really, what do you make of him? Forget these guys. I care that everyone in this church that I have an opportunity to talk to gives up their mixed motives, gives up their half excuses and simply trusts Jesus. The one crucified to atone for your sins. The one raised who poured out his spirit to give you eternal life. What do you make of him? And so, Lord, we do ask that you give us minds to understand, of course, but perhaps um, most importantly, soft hearts, hearts willing to be open to Jesus Christ. Lord, work in us by your Spirit, wherever we are in our journey, whatever ambivalence lies in each one of us. Please show us Christ in the power of your Spirit. Amen.